treat you bad. The 13-year-old singing at the Apollo. Starring as Rita Louise Watson in Sister Act 2. Joyful, joyful Lord, we adore Thee, God of glory, Lord of love. One third of the Fugees. So why you imitating Al Capone? I be needing Simone and defecating on your microphone. The first woman to win five Grammys in a single night. Thank you, God. Uh... Thank you, Father, so much. This is crazy because this is hip-hop music. And- the mom who made a choice to keep her son. But then an angel came one day, told me to kneel down and pray. For unto me a man child would be born. The artist who went, quote, crazy. Now that people think I'm crazy and deranged, right, we have peace, total peace. And so I, I listen, as far as I'm concerned, I'm crazy and deranged. As far as all y'all know, I'm crazy and deranged. The woman who went to jail for tax evasion. The eight-time Grammy winner was sentenced to three months in prison after pleading guilty to failing to file tax returns between 2005 and 2007. Who is critically late to her live performances. She also has a reputation for being a little bit tardy. At a recent French show on her Miseducation of Lauryn Hill 20th anniversary tour, she only performed a half-hour set because she showed up two hours late. Who trends on Twitter, dropping a rare verse. Now let me give it to you, balanced and with clarity. I don't need to turn myself into a parody. I don't, I don't do the shit you do for popularity. They clearly didn't understand when I said I get out. And the of woman parody. whose impact and influence is still felt in hip hop today. Yeah. Everybody get your motherfucking roll on. I don't shorty and she doesn't want no slow song. Confusing self-conscious with self-confidence. So you monogamous, but body positive. Post pills you swallowing for a following. What he got to offer, he don't see the kids. Yo, my men and my women. You need something Yo. unexpected. Yo. Some form of weapon. You ask him to feel Yo. protected. Yo. And still feel protected. These all inform the way she has presented herself and how we, her fans and critics, have come to conclusions on who she is. I'm Crystal Roberts. I'm Matt Linder. This is Flickers. I am so excited and thankful you are here. I wanted to take a moment to let you introduce yourself and then tell listeners about how you and I connected. Awesome. Thanks. I appreciate that, Matt. Yeah. So I have a MFA in professional writing from Savannah College of Art and Design and I did my graduate thesis on Lauren Hill's Unplugged album, and that's sort of how we got connected. You found it online somehow. <laughs> yes. And so, you know, you reached out and we sort of started this project. But as it relates to the thesis, you know, my primary interest at the time was the biblical themes of the Unplugged album. And 
at times the almost Bible reading on certain songs. Mm. So I was really fascinated by how she was using her understanding of the Bible to diagnose and then offer solutions to social, religious, and institutional problems that are rooted in racism and injustice. But what became most interesting to me were the solutions to problems she identified as plaguing all of humanity. Mm. And specifically those within her community and in hip hop, even as she spoke from a first person point of view. Solutions that I argued in my thesis were the same as the one she posited on miseducation. It was just a little more palatable on that album. Yeah, definitely. And I greatly enjoyed your thesis, (laughs) (laughs) exploring all those topics and that's why I reached out to you for this season of Flickers. And I thought you'd be the perfect fit for exploring Lauren and her music, the spiritual themes, as well as, you know, the societal and racial injustice themes that are, are all throughout her music. Right. Glad you reached out. But what about you? What's, what's your background, Matt? I have a master's in music history and literature. I'm a hip-hop scholar. And I've been really interested in my scholarship exploring the intersections of faith and racial justice in hip-hop. I have written on Lauryn Hill and her MTV Unplugged album, but not to the level of depth or extent that Crystal has. I presented a paper at the Festival of Faith and Music in 2015 that focused on how Lauren's faith informed her approach in the fight against systemic racism. So this is another reason why Crystal and I connected because we're exploring her music on very similar themes. In this season, you're not only going to hear about us speaking on these things, but we've also gathered together hip-hop scholars, writers, and musicians who all studied and been inspired by Lauren. Today, we're going to hear her stories of how Lauren personally impacted them in their work. So let's get to it. I, I made a piece of music from a sincere place, and I think that sincerity has no choice but to resonate with people. You know what I mean? I think that my motives were probably in the right place. You know what I mean? At the right time. And I think it resonated and, and, and spoke or represented something for a generation of people who needed that at that time or who wanted that at that time. In the mid to late 1990s, Lauren's impact was being felt all throughout music. From the moment she burst onto the scene with the Fugees, many in hip-hop already knew she was going to be a star. It changed my life. It changed anybody who was tuned in to Lauryn Hill at that time, and the Fugees at that time, it changed Because first of all, we was wondering what she was going to do solo. The music industry knew how big she'd blow up. When I just heard the music, and I just heard her singing, and my joy, and my world is in Zion. I was like, if this is what she's coming with, this is this is about to turn music, not just hip-hop. This is about to turn music on its, on its head. And she did. She turned music on its head. But maybe what everyone didn't know was the impact she would have on her audience. And I was a big fan of Lauryn Hill when she was in the Fugees anyway, and that was like a record that I grew up listening to. And I analysed that record for about a month at the age of eight, and I was like singing along to the lyrics of some of the deepest lyrics ever. Those that would hear the miseducation of Lauryn Hill and identify with her in ways 
that would last even until today. It didn't fit in a box. And I don't feel like I do either. But this was speaking the spiritual language I needed to hear in an art form that I understood and could relate to. Lauren is a spitter. Lauren gave birth to Drake. Without Lauren, there's no Drake. You cannot deny it. Those that would see her and recognize themselves or discover who they one day wish to be. First, Lauren Hill, my biggest inspiration in music. Uh, she taught me about truth and honesty and being unapologetically yourself. I literally said the words, do you guys, do y'all realize my idol is right there? No, 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 no. And within 30 seconds of me saying that, she walked into my room. I, I'm in love with you. That experience, that story of Meeting Lauren Hill for the first time is very personal, especially to Black women like me. You know, honestly, seeing Lauren Hill for the first time was like seeing the realized version of myself. I was about 14 and I saw the Fuji Lot video with BT. And for me, it was just awe-inspiring. But later, when the doo video dropped, I was in the 10th grade. And at that time, I had dreams of singing and songwriting. And I was even doing a little bit of rapping. Um, and I was dealing with topics that people in my age group at that time weren't necessarily talking about or thinking about. And Lauren was. But I had these insecurities. You know, I had insecurities about the way my hair looked, its texture, um, my intelligence as a little Black girl. And I was trying to figure it out, but I hadn't been able to. But then I saw Lauren on my screen and she was looking like me. And she was doing the very things that I had dreams of doing. And in a way, I felt like she was talking to me and assuring me of my worth and for a young girl with, you know, aspirations, she was just that representation that showed me it was possible to be Black, intelligent, talented, expressive, and somebody who could love God openly, but still be dope as hell at the same time. At that age, it took some time for all of that to actualize, you know, it, those possibilities just sort of in, unfolded for me over time. So in many ways, I feel like I walked through life with Laura's music because throughout every stop, somehow it was still relevant. But I think what had the biggest impact on me and really, really changed a lot of things for me is when I listen to the Unplugged album. When it first came out, I listened to it and I connected with it. But it was the biggest catalyst for me probably a decade later when I listened to it again. But this time, it was like I was listening with different ears. And that's really ultimately why I ended up analyzing it for my graduate thesis. And when I look back on it, I realized through writing that thesis, I was actually working at my own ideas and beliefs about God, spirituality, freedom, my identity, you know, even my voice as a woman because she was voicing 
raw vulnerability, honesty. And I never had the courage to do that before, but somehow I felt emboldened after that. She was expressing these things that I didn't even know how to at that point, but I was learning how to through her. And as these ideas were unfolding, I found myself connecting in a way that ended up being transforming for me. My experience is not unique. Many others were anticipating the miseducation of Lauren Hill. Well, she's meant a, a whole lot. This is Reagan Raven Jones. Raven Joel Detroit native, resident, an assistant professor at Michigan State University. I am a wonderfully and happily mom of a beautiful, beautiful little six-year-old girl. Plus the co-author with Ashley Newby of The Rhetoric of the Womb, academic, mothering and trying times on the road to Zion. I remember going to buy the miseducation the day that it came out. The day that it was released, August 25th, 1998. Earlier that year, I had just graduated high school. So I was on my way to college as a 17-year-old. I'll, I'll, I'll never, ever forget that. And my dad brother, Edward Bates, bless his heart, we went to Target. We were so excited to wake up that day. You know what I'm saying? Like, we were on the phone because it wasn't no texting back in 1998. We're calling each other like, hey, you on the way? Come and get me so we can go and pick up the album. He came to pick me up from my house. We're both from an area that's uh, well-known here in Detroit called Seven Mile. Nice little neighborhood. And we drove to Target, got the album, popped it in his 90s Corsica, four-door Corsica, old school. We had to get the separate sound system to be able to play CDs because those cars only came with cassette tape. And we get the album, we buy it, and we drive to Michigan State University. He dropped me off at school. Extremely good. And the conversations that we had along the way afterwards and still to this day really ring true in terms of who I am continually to develop as a woman and as a scholar. It is an activist. More than just her music, Lauren's style and presentation impacted a generation of Black women. For the PBS series, Icon Music Through the Lens, photographer Jonathan Mannion speaks about an iconic photo shoot with Lauren. This was her moment of miseducation of Lauren Hill. It was Honey Magazine. It was an entertainment, fashion, and lifestyle magazine for young urban women. And they wanted to really like lean in. They got her. She was a perfect fit. And I was like, I'm going to play into the honey tones. You know, the difference. Reflecting on this moment 20 years later, she was, so you said Joan Morgan had this to say on The Breakfast Club in 2018. I was, I'm in the first in issue the, Okay, of you're in the first issue. Yeah. And Lauren was on the cover yeah. of that first issue. Yeah, right? that's Kiana Mayo and um, Joyce Lynn Dingle. And that cover now is iconic. Like, mm -hmm. if you go through Tumblr, if you... Google her image, that's one of the top ones to come up. But I think that women who looked like her, who were dark-skinned, natural hair, had never really seen themselves represented that way. In one story, 
on the influence yeah, of Lauren's actually, look. Actually, she is the reason why I got locks, for sure. Well, it's my from Kane Marshall. I am a professor, assistant professor of religion, American religion, at the University of Rochester here in Rochester, New York. She also wrote The Hill from Whence My Help Comes, Black Women Rapping and Preaching Activism and Liberation. Here, Kone speaks of the influence Lauren had on her own personal style and what embracing that meant for her as a Black woman. Yeah, I was 12. I'm from the Midwest. Nobody had locks back then. But I knew, I was like, oh, when I turned 40, because that's how old I thought Lauren Herbert, I was like, I'm going to get locked too. You hear me call them locks and not dreadlocks as the term now coming from colonizers to refer to them as dreadful. But also tied to that kind of Rastafarianism ideology that the lock represent the line of Judah. Who else had dreadlocks that were a woman? Back then, I don't know it was under Indy Irie and Erica Badu's head wrap. So I won't say anything, but what she did for me is to question the game and the makers of the rule. At a young age, I really thought she was singing to me because she said she was. <laughs> you know, she's like, I wrote this song for everybody who was struggling in their youth. I was like, oh, that's me. As someone trying to navigate the world, so is she. That's why we need inclusivity because everyone brings their perspective to the world. Whether it's a bird high in a tree or a worm, you see the world differently. When she would say, how are you going to win when you ain't right within? Come again. And it was swaggy. And it was a confidence about her that she moved throughout the world and questioned. And this is not to knock anyone that does this. But she gave you a whole nother kind of way to live as a Black woman. I'd say I was a tomboy growing up. I own it now that I still am one. But when she would say, what she was doing was she was like, we're outsourcing our nails, our hair, our lashes. And it really isn't about that. It's about what's within. For me, her hair was all over the place, quote unquote, all over the place. And she's beautiful. She was dark. And it felt like getting education and knowledge, but fun. Like I was vibing to it, you know? And at the time, I'll tell you, I'm a huge Brad, Missy Elliott, Mia X. Like I love hip hop. And now, let alone black women hip hop, because as a tomboy, it's like, how do you get to hang out with the boys? You either play basketball or you're like a rapper. I remember her like having the baseball cap on and a scarf up under it. She was still so beautiful. I used to get dressed for y'all now. I don't do that no more. I'm sorry. It's, it's a new day. I don't have the energy. Five years later, with a totally different look, Minnie felt that she was just as beautiful then as she was in 1998. Here's Raven again. Well, beautiful in other regal ways that hadn't been seen in terms of her commercial success with the miseducation. You know, when she came out the miseducation, she had long, beautiful locks. 
makeup, all the things that are afforded to you when you have a team, when you have a whole situation. Whereas with Unwell, it was just her in her raw nature, blue jean jacket, sitting down, speaking to an audience. They clapping, giving her love. And I feel like she was still able to receive love in that way, even though it was different from what she experienced with the miseducation. Like, it's, it's real. It's real out here. I can recall going to one of her first concerts. When she went on tour with the miseducation, I tapped into one of my close girlfriends at the time in 98, 99. We dressed up and drove from Michigan State University to Illinois to see Lauren perform. Let me tell you, we wore blue jeans, jumpsuits, orange like tank tops, and orange and white air, like Nike Cortezes. We got dressed up. We drove from East Lansing to Chicago to go and hear Lauren perform. And it changed our lives. We still talk about it. We still reminisce over it. For Raven, Lauren's impact is more than her music and style, but the way she carried herself as a mother. Her focus on education and centering herself in religious faith. And I always kind of saw myself in her, and that's why I appreciate her so much, is because in addition to her being an artist and an activist and a mother, she is someone that we can relate to. And I don't feel like that's just a gender specific. Like we're living in a world right now where we need to take notice of not only men's issues, but women's issues, children's issues, family issues. And her intersectionality, meaning her being, is represented across all of those commonalities or all of those themes and threads. That means something to me. Like I can listen to her music right now and only listen as a mother and take something away. Then I can go back and listen to a song as an auntie and take something away. So in that way, her legacy extends across just what she was able to do with her time in the Fuji's with Prize and Wyclef. Just with her time, with her first studio album, with the miseducation of Lauren Hill, which had a lot of just remnants based on the miseducation of the Negro by Carter G. Woodson. And so that means something to me as a professor to be able to tie those things and those identities together, to be able to say to my students, hey, whether you want to be a teacher or not, there is still something else on the inside of you, whether it's an MC, whether it's a painter, whether it's a muralist, whether it's this or that, that you can bring all of those to bear at the same time and introduce those intersecting identities to your students to help them to understand that they're not out here alone. In addition to that, I feel like she's a woman that is extremely centered in grace and mercy, given her spirituality and given her earlier days with the church and starting her high school's gospel team. Like when she was at high school, there wasn't a gospel choir. She started that. That means something to me. The two moments that really come out to me are 
Killing Me Softly from the Fugees and Sister Act 2. Y'all, my this name is, is Eric House. I am an assistant professor of English at New Mexico State University. It was Sefi Chapman. He co-authored Wrecking Patriarchy and Capitalism in Lauren Hill's Hip Hop. I study and teach classes on black rhetoric and hip hop. Lauren's film debut with Sister Act 2, in a lot of ways, reflects her musical and religious roots. A powerful role that cemented for many listeners her as an artist informed by her spirituality. Sister Act 2, which I grew up in the church. And so I remember when it first came out, we, we always loved it and watched it. I think I was in middle school, middle school or high school. And we did like this larger Christmas production where like all the youth in our church, we did the Joyful Joyful song. In prep for that, we would just watch that movie over and over. And like, I'm, I'm the way that Lauren Hill's character gets down in that movie, I kind of resonate with for different reasons. The whole tension between like, her mom not letting her sing, the moment when she's singing His Eyes on the Sparrow. I sing because I'm happy And I sing because I'm free His Like she's singing in the moment when one of the other nuns watches her singing, she just stops. She's like, please don't stop. Because like she was bodying that song, right? So like I relate to that one because once again, her voice to me is just immaculate. Two, I think I struggle a lot with like imposter syndrome sort of things. When no one's watching, you feel like you can sing and dance and do all these things, which I mean, debatable if we can or not. But it's like the, the moment when someone watches you, you're like, and even if you get that positive affirmation, you say, I can't, I can't do it. That's kind of a deeper connection. But then going back to Joyful Joyful at the end of that movie, that's a very fond memory I have of growing up in the church is all of us came together. And I don't know how it sounded to everybody else in the church, but to me, we rocked it, you know what I'm saying? And Lauren Hill's character was like a lead voice in that song. Then with the Fuji song, Killing Me Softly, it brought her to an even greater prominence where kids were looking to emulate her. So I'm from California, born in California, moved to Tucson, Arizona, where I was raised. When my family first moved to Tucson, that's when that song came out. That's when the Fuji album dropped. I remember just being in like summer camps and summer programs. And it was ages ranged from like four or five years old all the way to like middle school, high school. Places where Tucson youth can really come and obviously get some summer instruction and summer camp, summer care, right? And I remember that was the song that everyone always wanted to cover, to sing at the little talent shows we did or whatever. I'm, I'm trying to describe what it is about that song. Anytime I hear it now, so much so that when you hear the original Nico Lauren Hill, which is kind of funny how those covers work, Something about that song, it just stuck with me. It's mostly the drums in the background. And then when you get to the chorus, you get the bass coming in. And obviously her voice is just immaculate to me. That's a fond memory I have of this is a new place, but I associate this new place with this song. I was really young. So like I would see like the older kids singing it and be like, wow, this is so cool. Like this is what it feels like to be an adult. 
in a lot of ways, it was like a nice transition song for me from one place to another to really get situated. I'm Mexican-American from Tucson. This is My name is uh, Alex, Alex Nava. I'm a professor at the University of Arizona. I created a class called Rap, Comma, Culture, and God. I'm finishing a book on hip-hop and the intersections of African-American and Latin American cultures, but, you know, increasingly the role of religion in hip-hop. And I appreciate those collaborations. I, I Alex here is speaking of the song uh, Zion, and no collaboration is more important on miseducation than Lord's collaboration with Carlos Santana. First of all, I have to give the story of how I initially hooked up with Carlos. Yeah. I used to write music, you know, write songs over over his guitar playing when I was a little kid. You know, I had all his records and and I would play uh, Samba Pati on a Braxton album and just write rhymes and songs on top of it. So I knew Carlos way before he knew me. If you go back to the very early days of hip hop, hip hop was a collaboration of Latino culture in the Bronx, particularly in the Bronx, Puerto Rican culture, a lot of the traditions, you know, there was collaboration among Latinos in early hip hop. And that's often erased in our memories of the role of Latinos in the culture. And certainly like in the b-boying tradition and graffiti writing, I mean, those aspects of hip hop culture were heavily influenced by Latinos. And even, believe it or not, if you look at the history of salsa music, salsa now has a odd reputation, but when it was first developing, it was born in the same time, early 1970s, the same time as hip hop, the same basic locations, the South Bronx, Spanish Harlem, other parts of that world, Ruben Blades and a lot of the great early salsa singers. And oh, it was very, very, and this is what's surprising people because again, the reputation of salsa now, it's like club music or the stereotypes of like Latin lovers and this and that. Back then, it was socially conscious music. It was street music. It was a music that was reflecting the abrasive, harsh realities of life in the barrios. It was barrio-centric music, but that's completely lost on side of. So as I see it, I, I, I love when there's those kinds of collaborations and what to Zion has in Santana. You might have seen it as prefiguring even greater collaborations in the future. And I think that has happened in, in our own time. And it's, I think we're going to see even more of that. That's one of the things that you can say that if you follow hip hop, that a lot of times it has been talked about in just black and white terms. It's really, really simplistic and, and it basically completely ignores the voices of brown and, and also like indigenous voices and experiences and cultures. I mean, basically in Latin American rap, there's very, very strong themes of Afro-Cuban traditions that are a crucial part of hip-hop. In Mexico, obviously, the, the stronger voice is kind of the representation of indigenous cultures and indigenous voices, given the role of the indigenous histories and Mexican culture and life and the abusive and oppressive histories that indigenous groups have endured. I hope that we see that more and more of different artists that are, you know, expressing the struggles and 
the marginalized experiences of not only African-Americans, but of, of various other groups as, as well. Carlos Santana demonstrated the kind of representation that made more of these kinds of cross-cultural musical collaborations possible on Miseducation smash hit to Zion. It also infused a sound in the track that would go on to influence other musicians. As Santana said in 2016, in an interview with the San Diego Union Tribune, quote, what I learned is that Mexican people have their own frequency, unquote. That frequency was heard loud and clear and continues every time we hear the opening riffs of Santana's guitar in the song's opening. I love the way Carlos Santana's guitar sounds to Zion. Like that, like... I mean, this is going to get into like nerdy world, but like the way it sonically feels, the way that guitar was recorded, it feels like the microphone's just right there and it's just killing it. Like right on the neck and it's just like so filling. My name is Julius Tunstall. I'm a 27-year-old artist from Asheville, North Carolina and producer and creative. For me personally, I'm working on my second album. I put out my first album, Sir Cries A Lot, about three years ago, and it was just done in my bedroom. Really small, tight-knit group of friends that worked on it with me. I mixed it myself. I mastered it myself. I know that if I want this next album to be more forward-thinking and more accessible for people, I just have to bring more people in and focus myself on just the music and then let everybody else do things that are better than me at mixing and mastering. And so, Lauren, hearing that growth is really inspiring to me because it's like you see that only a few times between a freshman and sophomore album. You would hope that the artist gets better, but like for her, there was just a huge just like step into people being, we want an album of just her. Can we just have an album of just her? Not to downplay the other members of the Fugees. From going to spitting a rhyme to singing the hook, like, she's special. I think every person needs to deal with, with that. Like, the idea of success and what is what are you actually striving for? What's the end goal here? Because I have to tell myself every day when I wake up, I'm like, all right, I got four songs I got to work on. I got to make some beats for this rapper that wants me to do an EP for him or da 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 And then I'm like, this is all the work that I've wanted. I'm actually working. I'm a working producer. Am I making all the money that I can to pay all my bills? No, but I'm working. If you would have told me 10 years ago, yo, you're going to be making music in your room all the time. And I would have been like, you're full of crap. It's really cool to hear the way that she approached a bigger production on Miseducation for like the way the drums hit definitely a pattern. One song specifically, rhythmically that I love and is so different is Everything is Everything. The kick is bump, 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 bump. Like, it's like very odd. And like everything rhythmically is in line with that kick pattern. That song is really sick. And the way that album's mixed is incredible, too. 
the way the drums or vocals, there's not a lot of reverb on her vocal because modern music is covered in so much reverb. If you listen to modern music and anything, you know that Drake or The Weeknd or anybody, honestly, is going to be like, I mix music sometimes and like, I catch myself being like, I put way too much reverb on there. It's a really cool way in modern music sonically to fill space. But like in the 90s, they were like, we're going to leave that space for you to think. And now we're like, we don't want anybody to think. <laughs> Nobody needs to think about anything. You're going to hear this big 808 that's going to like drag into the next kick. And you're going to hear this reverb that's just going to fill out the mix, which is like really cool. That's where we're at. But sonically, miseducation is so forward and so clean sounding. It's super inspirational to me because like it's one of the albums that I... I'm definitely going to send to a mix engineer and be like, hey, the way those drums hit, if you could just make sure mine hit that same way. I mean, it's influenced me greatly, like to be able to hear the different genres in the album, the reggae, the doo-wop, the hip-hop, the R&B, and then the folk, like twinkled in there sometime. It makes me feel more normal as a black creative to be able to do all these things and do it unapologetically. Because I feel like too many times when I was growing up, I literally was like, <laughs> I'm going to push every stereotype away. Like, I'm not going to do R&B music. I'm not going to, I'm going to be a folk artist. And I would just sit and, like, and play sad songs about girls that didn't like me through the acoustic guitar. And those things actually like are a really big part of who I am. But I stopped singing the way that I naturally wanted to sing. And... For that, I want to go back in time and kick myself in the balls. Miseducation is such an open door into the fact that Black people should have been getting noticed for all these genre-bending things that we were doing early. And she did it and packaged it in a way that was so well done that I like, couldn't help but like give her all the Grammy nomination, all the accolades. She focused on the task at hand and she delivered. I wish I had more from her, but we have what we have and we can just enjoy that. People that are higher up and like looking at these artists and pushing them into their breaking points and not really caring, it's a crazy thing. I can't imagine. I'm just a guy that lives in Asheville that wants to like make a little bit more money doing music so I can support myself and my family. Me even saying like, I want to make a little bit more money. Like that's part of the wheel you're stuck in. You know, what stood out to me from Julius is how Lauren's music constantly questioned his why. He didn't question like the reasons he was doing what he was doing. You know, it got him to his truth about making music, how he makes music. And I think what that reflects is, or what it demonstrates is how Lauren and her music and message, it demonstrates how Lauren sort of causes you to think, assess, to get to the purest form of whatever you're doing whatever you're feeling or experiencing. For Julius, that was and how he makes music. So I feel like one of the most powerful influences that Lauren's music and message has is that it really encourages the listener to exercise personal agency, a sense of like self-responsibility. And I feel like for Julius, that's what Lauren did for him and made him go inside and kind of understand what he was doing and why he was doing so that it would be true to him. Definitely. He heard in that too, that question, am I 
out here to get rich and famous or am I out here to try to be true to myself and my art right? and express who I am through this music and express whatever truths are true to me? What is more important? Zewin talks about how am I making enough money to get by on this? Right. Not quite, <laughs> but I'm making a decent amount of money and I'm happy. Has Lauren's music meant to me personally? This I is, am OT, the golden child. I am a father, a husband. I am a podcaster. I am an MC. Rapper, for OT, whatnot, so Lauren is. She is one of my greatest artists of all time. I can always play Lauren Hill. I can always play Lauren Hill. Which is reflected in a song like... The sweetest thing I ever know is a masterpiece to me. That's on the Love Jones soundtrack, I believe. But just the sultriness of that beat. Oh, and then the little guitar. And then the sultriness of her voice through these things that makes this person so enlightening to her. Your talk, your style of dress. Sometimes I'll watch you when you're in your sleep. Like just being able to get, to connect with that kind of stuff. Like who hasn't just watched your lover? Like, damn, I really love her. Or damn, you get on my fucking nerves sometimes. Whenever that's what, you know, she means to me personally, I'll always connect with a song like that. Whenever that song comes on, everything stops. It's like, oh, whoo. Like, oh my God, you know? Like, oh my God. Her music to me will be timeless. It's not often you get an, an enigma like a Lord Hill from the staff winner where, yeah, she only essentially had one L. And yes, she's late for her concerts sometimes and whatnot. But you know what, though? Guess what? You know, in 2016, when she came to Chicago and played at the Ravinia Theater, which is like this outdoor amphitheater in Chicago, guess what? It was packed. And that's not ever going to not happen because she is Miss Lauren Hill. Man, she's a once in a generation artist. That's, that's it right there. That's the word there. She's a yay that did make more albums. She's a, a Kendrick Lamar, a Marvin Gaye. I am not a, as polished as of a singer as her at all. I don't say first of all. But just the rawness and the honesty, that kind of writing, these types of artists that can give you a old Jerusalem that can give you those X Factor type joints and all that. And not being afraid to make a final hour, right? Or a forgive them father, like those types of songs. In a time where you have to sell, obviously the music industry is about a product and being able to sell your records. But I don't think she ever compromised who she was for her music. And that's something that's inspiring or something that I definitely can say that I drew from is I don't care. I'll be 38 this year. I'll be dropping the album within the next couple months. And the shit that I'm talking about is what I'm talking about. And hopefully people like it. And if they don't, that's just how I was feeling when I wrote the shit. So 
you know, Otis mentioned Lauren's rawness and honesty. And that's the thing that connects, right? You know, that place of vulnerability that we can't and sometimes don't allow ourselves to access. So it's like she does it for us and kind of gives us permission to feel the things that are truest to us. And sometimes that's the very thing we need to confront our fears and grow personally and like professionally or in our craft. I love that he touched on the courage, the fearlessness, and just that commitment to being authentic and that translated for him. People keep showing up to her shows, even though they know she's going to be late and she will not play her songs the way they are on the album, but they continue to show up and there's a reason for that. And regardless of what's happening at those shows, they show up because her music actually did what she talked about when she said music is supposed to inspire. Right. I really connect with Otis on that too, about her vulnerability, because that's what drew me into her music initially. Yeah. And then just hearing her unplugged, pushing into that vulnerability even more, like connecting me even further into her music and into what she was saying and pondering the things that she's saying, the way her music is working in conjunction with what she's saying, the way she's presenting herself and she's just being her truest, realist self that she's giving us, her listeners, ripping the curtain back to allow us into those hurts, those good times, those bad times, the love, the anger, (laughs) letting just into all those various human emotions that we feel is quite an experience. And as you said, even though we go to a Lauren concert, she starts late every single time. And the arrangements are very different from the album. She's communicating that vulnerability to the audience. And that's why people are still showing up. Absolutely. 20 years later, her life, her music, her career, and her impact is being studied by academics and scholars. There are two books that were written to celebrate the 20th anniversary. Joan Morgan's She Begat This, 20 Years of Miseducation of Lauryn Hill, and a collection of essays by various authors, including some of the contributors to this episode, called Celebrating 20 Years of Black Girlhood, The Lauryn Hill Reader. There is no lack of scholarship on Lauryn and her work, where it's been viewed through multiple lenses. It's been studied in academic disciplines, such as hip-hop studies, where we have work from Dr. Imani Perry, professor of African-American studies at Princeton University, where she examined Lauren's lyrics in her 2004 work, Prophets of the Hood, Politics and Poetics in Hip Hop. Gender studies, through the work of Professor Patricia Ann Stooks, where she analyzed how Lauren's lyrics reflect the ethics of Alice Walker's womanism. Religious and theological studies, with scholars like Associate Professor of Evangelism, Dr. Ralph Watkins, who looked at the miseducation of Lauryn Hill and emphasized what is inherently good in redeeming hip-hop and rap music. And he used that culture as a lens to open up the power of the Bible for ministry to a generation in his book, 
Hip-Hop Redemption, Finding God in the Rhythm and the Rhyme. Several years ago, I was interested in who were the women doing R&B and doing rap and doing hip-hop. And I think that's when I first collected some of her music. This I is Dr. Cheryl Kirk Dugan. I'm a retired professor from Shaw University Divinity School, an intellectual scholar, artist, uh, performer, and 25 plus published books. Cheryl wrote Comparative Analysis Between Lauren and Tupac. The comparative analysis is the theopoetic theological ethics of Lauren Hill and Tupac Shakur in creating ourselves African Americans and Hispanic Americans on popular culture and I religious saw expression. Both of them were very, very bright persons. Lauren is a go getter. She's always driven, always had a tremendous faith in God because of her upbringing with her parents. It was always determined to succeed. So you've got a person who at one time is a straight A student. She's also an actor and she's also a recording artist all at the same time. So I was intrigued also by her use of scripture in her music. And also it was clear of her broad-based education because of the various metaphors and the various people that she used in the music, especially in this education. I think both prophetically and I think poetically, because I'm also a poet. In fact, my last book was entitled Baptized Rage Transformed Grief. I got through something new. So I can identify with her because of her use of language. And she almost does word painting. When you listen to it, the music, I'm listening to it from two, almost three ways of listening. One, I'm listening as an artist and performer as to how she sings. So she has this really cool way of engaging classic R&B standards with hip hop. And she's able to then the clean style with her own very sort of mellow, almost like an alto saxophone type voice. Then she's very precise on her words. Therefore, she's able to both use the music to create a sensibility. So if you're only listening to the tracks for the melody and the sound without the words, you get part of the message. With the words on top of the music, you get a, a more complete message. I think about it in terms of like when I did some work on the spirituals that I could see four different multiples. It's like double voicing, like the double consciousness that you have with the voice. There was a, a, a double music, music came. So you've got the words and the meaning from the words and the music and then it together. You also have a sense of the theology that's going on. And so when you look at the issues in Lauren's life, both leaving the Fuji's. And I'm not paying attention if that's what everybody else was feeling. You know what I mean? Perhaps, um, you know, it bothered Prize or maybe it bothered Wyclef that people would say that I would go solo and I didn't know, I wasn't aware of it. And when people lied on her saying she's been a racist. I think that it was probably taken out of context. What I was saying is that I make my music for young black youth because I'm a young black youth myself. And there's you a are? message in my song. Yes. And that's for people who look and come from the same areas that I do. That doesn't mean that my music isn't universal. So you don't mind white people? And her decision to have sign to have a daughter. I think motherhood has um, influenced my life. You know what I'm saying? Just in general. Um, I always say that Zion had the most to do about my miseducation because it was like he he revived me. You know what I mean? He, he, it's like God sent him to revive my spirit. All of that is like you see this kind of double bind 
where she stands out, she holds to her own truth without apology. And I think that's one of the strongest things that I see in her that comes across in the way she understands freedom, the way she understands justice, and the way she understands love. She's going to always be true to herself. That's one of the places where we've connected. Because I've always had a sense of this is who I am and this is what I'm doing. Like her, I've always been God-directed. So even when my late husband proposed, I didn't say yes until I said, God, okay, I know I like this man. I think I love him. Am I supposed to marry him? Give me a sign. God gave me a sign. I said, yes. The same way with my most recent job. Didn't matter whether I needed a job or wanted a job. God, is this the job I'm supposed to take? Gave me an actual sign on the side of the road. And so, like Laurie, we're both very much God-driven. Now, there's some ways in which we aren't exactly like, I mean, she's had an international career. I have her, but I've been a musician. So there are other differences. That strong engagement where God is very, very present on a daily basis in a very concrete way, we definitely share that. Cheryl actually shows us where we're going with this podcast. If we listen carefully... Lord Hill's message hinges on love, freedom, and justice. And while we might not have looked at these three themes as separate and deserving of individual analysis, if we're to understand Lauren's music more fully, it almost demands that we see them as interdependent or even as a product of the others, as Dr. Cheryl Kirk Dugans points out. I listened to the title song was Education, and she also has a song called Freedom Time. And then I also listened to, to Zion and when it hurt so bad, and I looked at her understanding of these three concepts of freedom, love, and justice. And these components really are interwoven, so you could start with any one of them, because if you start with her understanding of freedom, you're going to move toward love. For Lauren, you cannot be free if you don't know love. You cannot experience justice if you don't know freedom. And it's both present in her music and it's present in her life. And love is the foundation of it all for Lauren Hill. Conform to love, to actually be love incarnate. Mm-hmm. To be love incarnate. Because that's what I was before. And to not listen to people who might say that love, something's wrong with being love. Is this reality or just emotion? Yeah. Yes, I would rather feel given that hand. A part of hurting you again. I want to be conformed to love. Show me what to do again. Show me how to win your heart. Flickers is produced, edited, and scripted by me, Crystal Roberts, and me, Matt Linder. Engineering, mixing, and sound design by Matt Linder. Theme music by Julius Tunstall. Cover art by Paperhead Prayers. Episode consultation by Morgan Lee. Additional music from Yawns, FND Guitar, Nabil Sayodi, and Ashuka Made It. Please take a moment to hit that share button and text it to a Lauren Hill fan, a hip-hop fan, or a music fan. When you leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podchaser, or Good Pods, tell us how you met Lauren Hill. We'll be back next week with... Zion, the joy of my world. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye. So, 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 I can't.
Yeah, so I, I too discovered Lauren's Unplugged album later on. It was about a decade after it was released. I was really enraptured with how different her sound was on that album, that she was, as she jokingly says at one point, a hip-hop folk singer. <laughs> right. But I was also, you know, struck by the interludes that acted sort of like these sermonettes and the way the audience interacted with her in those moments, as well as the songs. It felt very much like being at church, you know? Yeah. A lot of amens and hallelujahs <laughs> coming from the audience. Right. I took a deeper look at the the lyrics of the songs and I came to realize how deeply theological these songs were. And I'm like, whoa, she mm. really is trying to teach people something today. <laughs> and I was so blown away by the deep-seated spirituality of it all. I myself got a bit emotional at times just listening to the performance. Backing up a bit, Unplugged wasn't my first introduction to her. Like a lot of teenagers in the 90s, I watched a ton of MTV after school. And the Fugees Killing Me Softly and Ready or Not were super, super heavy rotation. I wouldn't say that at the time I was a Fugees or even a rap fan. I was raised on classic rock from the 50s, 60s, and 70s. And then also a little bit of 80s synth pop. The blackest music we had in my household was Michael Jackson. But everyone in the 80s was listening to Michael Jackson, whether you're black, white, brown. So because what I'd been exposed to all my life was just rock music and very much the white hippie stuff of the 60s was <laughs> the central stuff that my dad listened to. That when the whole grunge and alternative scene came out in the 90s, I embraced that scene extremely hard as my own. To be really honest, I looked down on hip hop in the early 90s when I was in middle school. For a white teen growing up in suburbia in the 90s like me, that was probably, you know, a pretty common experience. But even with those biases, I had positively towards rock music and negatively towards hip-hop. I still had a sense there was, you know, something unique and special about Lauren Hill. So the day the miseducation dropped, I actually went to my local record stores. Shout out Temple Records, rest in peace. And I bought the miseducation of Lauren Hill. I immediately went into my car after that, popped my CD into my disc man with the Kinzet converter. Because <laughs> I did not have a CD player in my car. <laughs> so I listened to it over and over and over and over again. Lauren just made me realize what I'd been missing out on by choosing not to listen to hip hop. And so, from my experience with Miseducation, I went on to learn about The Roots, Mos Def, Common, Joel Scott, Erica Badu, all those neo soul artists. And then from there, I even went back to the golden era of hip-hop to better understand and appreciate the genre as a whole. For me, Lauren is extremely special because she was a catalyst for my lifelong love of hip-hop. Her impact has been so huge on me that my youngest daughter is even named after her, <laughs> which is crazy. 